Good morning, everyone. Uh, bright and early this morning. Nice to see you all. Um, I'm Gloria Halverson, and I think we'll get started because I want to leave time for you to have uh, questions. Um, I'm a gynecology. I've done reproductive endocrine for most of my career. Three years ago, I left the medical school, and I'm just doing global health things overseas, so you'll hear me, if, if you're interested, I'll be speaking in some other areas today, too. Most of you aren't going to be reproductive endocrinologists, so why are they having this talk here? It is a brave new world that we live in, and um, you're going to have patients, or you're going to have friends, or as a citizen of the society, I think it's important to know what's uh, going on with these issues. So let's just open with prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord of all creation, you are the ones who created us, and we are eternally grateful to you um, for saving us and wanting to be with us. Um, a lot of things are happening around us in this world, and um, we need to know about those things and be prepared as Christians with responses. So I ask your hand on this session, on the information that I bring, on the things that people hear, that this all will be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, I've got to get this to, there you go. I put this quote up. Uh, you heard me praying to God, our creator. And Leon Cass, who's an ethicist, has said, that there's been a big change in the world because we used to talk about procreation based on the fact that we have a creator. And now we talk about reproduction because we have switched our emphasis to what we produce uh, rather than how we were made. Um, that's just a representative of some of today's attitude this quote is an old quote and goes back a long way, but I think it's still very valid today. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I do have to admit a bias today. Um, it's not a sponsorship by a drug company or anything like that, but I am going to be speaking from a point of view that I believe life begins um, at fertilization. And <clears throat> this is the crux behind many different things that you hear about what we should do with embryos and what we should do with these issues, because I am in the minority who believe that way today. The American College of OBGYN, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, most people in this field believe that life begins later. And I just put up, for example, some ways in cultures around the world and medical groups, people look at life beginning. Uh, in infancy, um, some when they reach their first baby, uh, first birthday, babies are finally named and then considered a child. Some consider life beginning when you first are born and breathe. Some consider it viability, which is interesting when you think how, depending on where you are in the world, the age of viability is actually quite different. So that's a, a drifting definition. Some believe it's uh, quickening when the mother feels the baby move. Some think when it's you can first hear heart tones, and you know that's changed tremendously with Dopplers and then ultrasounds. Um, some believe... Uh, at day 90, this is a Muslim belief, after fertilization, life begins because the female, uh, the soul, enters the female child. But it's day 40 for male child because at day 40, the soul enters the child. Um, they also believe brain activity begins then. Some say day 28 with organ formation. Uh, there is, this is a very popular one in medical literature, the pre-embryo. It's considered a pre-embryo up till day 14, which is why many people allow research to be done. Um, because after day 14, if you remember your embryology, 
uh, from school, the primitive streak has formed and there can be no more splitting or uh, twinning of the embryo. And so pre-embryo is listed a lot, which is a euphemism for a 14-day um, embryo. Some believe it begins at implantation. Um, the American College of OBGYN, for example, based its statement on it begins at implantation. And some, as I do, believe it begins at fertilization. This is, this is an egg uh, with sperm around it. And this is, I think, when life has just begun. If you look at this, there is, uh, this is a, still an egg, but it's fertilized. And there is a male and female nuclei, pronuclei in the center of this. And as a Christian, I believe this, but as a scientist, I believe this. This, to me, I, I can't understand there being an argument because you now have an organism that is genetically unique. It's not the mom. It's not the dad. It's like no, no one else. It is a unique, new individual. It's human it's not a cow or a bird or a flower or anything else. It's a human. And it's beginning to divide and grow. It's alive. So when I have a new, unique, human, living organism, to me that's life and when it begins, no matter what way I look at it. So that's the bias I'm coming from. Um, <clears throat> this cartoon, I think, sums up a lot of what's happening Today, this mom has her family album. She's telling her daughter, this is the geneticist with your surrogate mother. Here's your sperm donor and your father's clone. But, and this is me holding you when you were just a frozen embryo. The point being that we can do an amazing number of things now, technologically. They say there's 28 different ways to make a baby today. But... I believe the question for us is, should we be doing these things? And so I want to give you some information about them. <clears throat> because Aristotle said, a small error in the beginning leads to a multitude of errors at the end. And I can tell you many times during my career of meeting with Christian ethicists and pastors and other people as new developments came and I wanted to decide about continuing in this field, you know, I'll stand before God one day and is this the right thing? Because if you don't think through the whole thing, it's very easy to say, oh, gee, this looks, looks good. So it's important we look at the issues. <clears throat> First of all, this is just looking at some of the legal um, situations. For example, in Costa Rica, um, any sort of assisted reproduction is banned. Um, they believe life begins at fertilization, and so it's not allowed. In Italy, they don't allow sperm donors. They don't allow surrogacy. They don't allow freezing of embryos. You can only produce three embryos. They all have to be put back. Um, in Slovenia, they had a referendum to the public um, who don't have medical background saying, should we provide benefits for in vitro fertilization for single People And that referendum was voted down and failed. But there's a lot of legislation in countries about what you can do and what you can't do. The interesting thing in the United States is we don't have that legislation. So you're sitting in a country where it's up to the provider to decide what he or she is going to do. And many people feel they, they don't need any legislation. It should be up for the scientists to decide. And I'll put a slide speaking to that in a few minutes. But first I want to start with in vitro fertilization or test tube babies. This is actually a picture of me with Louise Brown. <clears throat> Any of you, most of you don't know who Louise Brown was. Louise Brown, yeah, people my age are, no. Louise Brown was born in July 1978. And Louise Brown was the first in vitro fertilization baby in the world. Zoom from there to today, and there, more than 1% of babies born in the U.S. every year are born from in vitro fertilization. And last year, uh, I'm sorry, 2010, where we have the latest statistics, 147,000 babies in the U.S. were born from in vitro fertilization. 
Now, if you do look at in vitro fertilization, there are some relative risks. You can see here first trimester bleeding, ovarian torsion, preeclampsia, placenta previa, abrupt seal. It goes through the whole list of problems. And there is an increased risk in all of these things with in vitro fertilization. If we talk about the ethical issue of informed consent with things that we do from, with patients, you won't often hear this discussed. And I have to tell you, not only is it not discussed, but as someone who spent a career working on this, patients don't care. They want a baby. Um, you can see at the bottom it talks about an increase in major congenital anomalies. <clears throat> this is a study that was just presented at a pediatric meeting about three weeks ago in California. It was done by the uh, University UCLA, and um, they looked at 5,000 uh, women um, with or 5,000 infants born from infertil- in vitro fertilization, and they found this increased risk of birth defects. Um, it was 9% for 6, 6%, which is statistically significant. But again, it isn't anything that you hear about. I want to talk about what a few of the ethical issues are with in vitro fertilization, um, but I'm going to give you a whole potpourri of things because we have moved far from July 1978 in, in what we're doing now. Um, cost, right to access. There are seven states that mandate insurance coverage for in vitro fertilization, but it costs probably about $15,000 in most places today to do an in vitro fertilization cycle. So right away we have a situation where is it right for the rich to be able to have something and those who can't afford it can't have it? Is, is that a good thing to do? What about age? I'll show you some slides later. 67-year-old woman in Spain pregnant with in vitro fertilization donor egg. Do we have a cutoff? Is it okay to be 67 and do this? Is it okay to be 50? Is it okay to be 42? Where, where is the line? How do you decide? Um, what about marital status and sexual orientation? Um, there was a case in California that went to the Supreme Court. CMDA was involved in the amicus brief on that, uh, where two uh, gynecologists had actually been caring for a woman for more than a year um, doing infertility treatments, and then she wanted in artificial insemination, and she was told um, that they wouldn't do that, but they sent her to someone who would do that. She had it done. She got pregnant. She sued those doctors for discrimination against her because she was lesbian. This This case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the doctors lost the case. They did not inseminate any non-married people on religious grounds, but this has been lost in this country. Um, What if they're on welfare? What if they have mental illness that can be genetic and passed on to the baby, or mental illness that can perhaps make them not capable of caring for a child well? What about if they have a criminal history? Um, Many of you remember who Yitzhak uh, Rabin was. He was from Israel, who had been a previous prime minister. He was assassinated. His assassin was put in jail for life. And while he was uh, in jail, he married a woman by proxy. This was in 2004. She was a divorced woman. She had four children. And um, the the court allowed every two-week visits to the prison uh, for her, but no conjugal rights. So they uh, petitioned the Supreme Court of Israel to allow artificial insemination for her, and it was granted. What if you're HIV positive? What happens to the embryos if you get a divorce. Uh, Is it different, you know, do we have the same rights uh, if you can pay for something yourself or where the government and society is paying for it? Is it one thing where you say it's not a good thing for teenagers to get pregnant in the back of a car, but is it one thing if you do it yourself without help and another thing to purposely, um, intentionally do it with high tech medical services. 
Um, what about places that now give money-back guarantees? A um, lot of issues, I think, in vitro fertilization brings up. And anybody know who this is? Octomom, right? And Octomom, to me, is the biggest argument when I hear my society saying we don't need any regulation of what's being done. This broke so many ethical, ethical principles uh, to do this case that I, we could spend the whole time on Octomom. Octomom. This is something that was in my newspaper last week. Raffle prizes make some go gaga in vitro fertilization. Some fundraisers are raffling off an in vitro fertilization cycle now as a prize. So I don't know if that makes children in the same category as getting a new car or a new TV, um, but they're using it in Raffles. Okay, we've got sperm. We have an egg being fertilized. These actually, by the way, are real pictures, and it just, every time I look at them or see them or think about it, it just makes me think how wonderfully and fearfully we are made. Um, we get embryos, and then what about transferring embryos? In the United States, 57% of babies born from IVF are multiple pregnancies. And most of you know multiple pregnancies are dangerous. They're dangerous for the mom. They're very dangerous for the children. The prematurity issue is very high, and the more premature children are, the higher chance they have of lifelong uh, damage. So how many embryos do you transfer? In this country, a lot of advertising is done by in vitro fertilization clinics. And I can tell you that when patients look to find a provider, one of the things they look at is what is their success rate. The bottom line is the more embryos you transfer, the higher your success rate is going to be. Also, the higher your multiple birth rate is going to be. Um, so that probably has a lot to do with it. In Country, certain countries have laws on how many can be transferred. Sweden, Belgium, one, uh, several countries, two. You can see we don't have laws on the average. It's 2.9. But obviously, in Octomom, it was eight. Um, I've had people come in who had been treated in other places and had nine uh, embryos transferred. Now, what's often said to these women is, don't worry, you can have embryo reduction which is another euphemism, um, so that we just abort some of the babies so that you have less babies. So it becomes a very tangled web that we have woven of ethical issues. And I think part of the problem with this whole multiple issue, uh, birth issue, is this study, which was done back in 2007, now... Um, when IVF first grew, you could had to transfer an embryo by day three. That's the longest you could keep it in culture. Today, culture media has changed, so you can grow embryos out further to day five when they become a blastocyst, and blastocysts have a much higher implantation rate. So a lot of transfers have been moved to day five. And when you look at the clinical pregnancy rate between just transferring one embryo and transferring two and the difference between your twinning rate, I think it makes it perfectly clear that you could have a perfectly good pregnancy rate transferring, doing a set or a single embryo transfer and not take the risk. But that's not what go, goes on. Um, this, however, the... ASRM is American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is in charge of all this. Uh, their ethics committee chairman made this quote, any legislation aimed at reducing multiple pregnancies that increases patients' costs, patients' burdens, and the risk of failure is unjust. So reproductive technology in the United States does not want to be legislated. Another thing that uh, affects birth rates in clinics, if you look online, Embryos are graded after they're produced into A, B, C, and D embryos. D embryos have basically died. They have stopped uh, 
dividing, they are, you're not going to get pregnancies. A is the best quality. C is the least good quality, but still potential. And I have had patients where we've put in two grade A embryos and neither one has taken and uh, frozen eight other embryos because she seemed like she had wonderful embryos being produced. I've had someone who all they've gotten is one grade C embryo and we've put it in and she's had a baby. So it's not like these have no potential. It's it's an artificial system that's not 100% accurate making some differentiation. There are clinics that will only implant grade A embryos to try to increase their pregnancy rate and throw out the other embryos. So that's another issue that comes up. Um, We talked about embryo development. Um, I want to point out that blastocyst because this becomes important later as we talk about pregenetic diagnosis, which is done on a day three um, blastocyst. And also, that's as far as they're taken before they then can be frozen. And so <clears throat> here we have a frozen embryo clinic. And when they have the issue come up, there's advantage to frozen embryos because if you pay $15,000 and you get uh, four embryos, you put them all back, you have a risk of multiple births. You put back two and you freeze two, a frozen cycle only costs maybe $2,000 to put back, and it's not all the drugs and all the stimulations. So it gives her much greater opportunity of getting pregnant. But on the other hand, there have been many legal battles over frozen embryos. There was a case in Australia of a very well-to-do couple who were killed in a plane crash. They had frozen embryos. What's the inheritance rights of these embryos. What happens to them? What um, <clears throat> what happens if a couple gets divorced and they have frozen embryos? There's a couple in Texas, August and Randy Roman, and they had been infertile and going through infertility treatments for, for uh, several years, and they finally had an in vitro cycle done, and they had made six embryos, and they were going to have them transferred, all six of them. And the night before the transfer, the husband says to the wife, I just don't think we should do this right now. I'd really like to see you closer to God before we go ahead and start our family and have children. So they took the six embryos and they froze them. And then he told her they were getting divorced. She wants to use the embryos. He doesn't want her to use the embryos. Um, All court cases thus far which have been fought on that have ruled in favor of the person who did not want to procreate. So now what happens to the embryos? Well, they they get destroyed. Um, Many issues with frozen embryos. Um, What happens when you have extra embryos? not divorces and deaths and things like this, but the couple has had the number of children they choose to have and you have more embryos left uh, in the freezer. Well, there are basically three options. The most common things done is the embryos are destroyed. The second most common thing is that they're used for research. I shouldn't say second most common because in England that is the most common. They're used for research. In fact, people do embryo uh, splitting to pay for their IVF cycle they agree to take half the embryos they get and give them for research. And it gives them a break on the price for getting getting it done. So they're producing children that are embryos that are going to be destroyed for research um, or putting them up for adoption, donating them. That's different than selling them. In my program, for example, if you came into the program, it was very clear you had no option. We would not destroy them or use them for research. They would only go for adoption. And I just want to mention the National Embryo Adoption Center, um, which is very active in this area and has a good success rate uh, in Tennessee. And uh, there are other places, for example, two like Snowflakes that do embryo adoption programs. So there are, are... ways, some ways out of that dilemma. Let's talk a little bit about the ethical issues for sperm donation. Um, There are, again, countries where it's illegal. In Croatia, in Egypt, 
uh, in Morocco, it's uh, illegal. In England, you can donate sperm or you can donate eggs, but you can't sell them. You can't reimburse the person um, who gives them. And most people give them to make money. Most people, for example, are students who donate, and it's a way of making money. This I took off the Internet. <clears throat> this is an ad on a sperm, sperm donation um, cycle. And I can tell you at the standard sperm banks that we use, um, there's now a division. You go online and you can read um, what they do for a living, whether they play the piano, if they're athletic, what their height, their hair color. You can learn all these things about the donor, so you can try to design the you know kind of child that that you would like to get. And it used to be that um, donor sperm each cost about $25, which is just aging myself. And that was fresh sperm, and it was usually medical students, but then there was an HIV transfer in Australia using live sperm, so now we only use frozen, and they have a lot of screening done on them. Um, now they charge, uh, for example, $200 if you would like the sperm of someone who's, say, a real estate agent. But if you pay $300, you can get into a bank that will give you pre-law students and pre-medical students. So they have regular or deluxe sperm categories. <laughs> and ethically, what is that saying? Is it saying that pre-law student is a more valuable person than a real estate agent? That's the implication, isn't it? Um, so you can sort of look for your IQ and your athletic ability and, and all of that and decide, you know, what's of more value. Um, in New Zealand and in Australia, they are considering putting donor, sperm donors' names on birth certificates. Um, in gay and lesbian marriages or partnerships, uh, this is coming into play where there's a third parent where a lesbian couple has used donor sperm. And you can only by law have one mother on a birth certificate, but you can have a mother and a second parent for the other one of the lesbian couple. Um, but now you can also put your sperm donor on there too. And sperm um, donation through the sperm banks has always been anonymous unless I've had, a, um, I've had an Arab couple who the male was infertile and he had a cousin and they were circumcised together and they grew up together and it was a great honor that he wanted his cousin to be the sperm donor for him. But generally they're anonymous and people go through sperm banks. Uh, Canada just struck down that law of anonymity. So anyone then can trace back. Uh, if you were, as a medical student, donated sperm, someone may come looking for you at some point and say, you're my dad. Um, and what was said uh, dur during this was that, um, this, is, this is the quote, why should these young women and all the other donor children they represent go through life suffering the torment of knowing half of their genetic identity. So that's changing. Um, this is a situation with these four women have three kids, uh, and they're all use the same sperm donor. And that is an issue. If a sperm bank gets a donor um, and they send the sperm off to clinics and they get reports that they didn't produce any children, they're not going to keep using that donor. They get a donor and he has produced children. This is a good donor. They want to keep selling his sperm. How many do you let him, how many children do you let him produce? Two? Twenty? A hundred? A small village? So now you have children who meet as adults and don't know that they have the same biologic father because neither one of them has the same father that they grew up with. So that passes on issues, as well as here's an article about a genetic disease that sperm donor um, passed on. They are screened 
by history for genetic disorders that run in their family, but these things can still happen. Let's talk a little about egg donation, because egg donation is really more complex. Um, and I don't, this is just an objective statement. I'm not this, making no judgments about this, but frankly, it isn't too hard for men to donate sperm as opposed to women who have to have daily injections and ultrasounds and blood tests and have needles stuck up through their vagina to harvest eggs. It's, it's a much bigger, complicated thing. There's much more risk to the woman to be an egg donor. Um, here is a site online called Ron's Angels. Ron used to produce pornographic movies uh, for Hollywood, but now he's in the egg business. And it talks about, um, this is actually done as an auction. They auction off these women's um, eggs. And it talks about um, the aroma and attractiveness in nature is nature's shorthand for health and hardiness. If you could increase the chance of reproducing beautiful children and thus giving them an advantage in society, would you? Any gifts such as beauty, intelligence, or social skills will help your child in their quest of happiness and success. And then you can pick out the kind of donor that you want. You can bid on them. These, these eggs go for up to $50,000 from these donors. Um, a regular donor uh, through a clinic, um, they cost about $3,000 that the donor is given, but they are not given the money to buy the eggs. That's an important thing. They're giving them money for their pain and time and inconvenience, plus all their, you know, costs, their medical costs. Um, <clears throat> here's some of the things I was talking about before. You can do a lot with donor eggs now because biologically, <clears throat> since Sarah, there's not been a lot of women that can have babies past menopause age. Um, but with donor eggs... Uh, you can do all sorts of things. There's, there's not an insignificant amount of movie stars that have used uh, donor eggs and, and gestational carriers and things like that. Quadruple pregnancy in a 51-year-old menopausal woman. This is here in the United States. 60-year-old giving birth to twins. 62-year-old in England. As I said, there's been a 67-year-old woman in Spain. I thought this was a good cartoon. <laughs> And this is my editorial comment on the whole thing. Um, now you can freeze eggs, um, which actually ethically is a little less complicated, um, freezing an egg than an actual human being. Um, a woman, Melanie Boyvin, age 35, she donated 25, um, 30, she, she donated 21 eggs uh, through IVF and has had them frozen for her daughter, who's now age seven, um, because she has Turner syndrome and so won't be able to conceive. And this way, her daughter can use her mom's eggs to get pregnant. Interesting thing, if you think about it, will be that this little girl is going to give birth to her half-sibling if she does this. This is an ad I picked up at one of our national meetings um, Actually, about five years ago, because there is, it happens to be a new method that is vitrification, which is making egg freezing more successful. At that time, it wasn't very successful at all. There hadn't been more than 100 pregnancies in the whole world from freezing hundreds of thousands of eggs. But this is basically an ad to a woman saying, you know, your biological clock is running. So if you want to keep your career and you want to wait and finish graduate school, and you want to do all this, why don't you freeze your eggs and save them for later so you can use them when you get older? So this is not just being used for to solve a medical dilemma of a young girl with a chromosomal problem. It's being used as a convenience um, thing for people in their lives, and it has risks associated with it. Um, this is another uh, thing I took off the uh, website, the Abraham Center for Life. You see this beautiful quote about Abraham and Sarah and um, 
Sarah having a son and being able to share in the process of creating a family. Um, this, they do interesting things here. First of all, this was uh, mainly put together um, for gay and lesbian couples to be able to get eggs or get, get sperm for um, having families. And then they've also started um, making embryos, designer embryos that you can get from here. They're uh, $2,500 for an embryo. And you, um, all the women that they use are, are in their 20s, which means that they're less likely to have chromosomal abnormalities and things like that. All the sperm donors have advanced degrees. They either have PhDs or MDs. So you can sort of pick out the guy, you, you know, the characteristics you want for your egg and the characteristics you want for your sperm. There is a long waiting list for blonde, blue-eyed embryos right now. And... <clears throat> The commercialization of human reproduction ethically treats, starts treating children as a commodity that you go to get as, as much as if you're picking out the color of the furniture and the shape uh, for a room. And this, I mean, it violates all sorts of ethical principles, the principles of justice, the principles of malfeasance, the principles of autonomy. There's some questions even about the legality of this because this is interstate sale of, of humans. Um, John Robertson at the University of Texas in Austin, this, this place is in Texas, said, I know to some people that this is shocking, but if you step back a bit, you realize that people are already choosing sperm and egg donation in separate transactions. Combining them doesn't pose any new ethical issues. There's a huge divide I mean, eggs are tissue, sperm are tissue, they carry genetic material, but donating blood um, or your kidney, these are human tissues. That's very different than dealing in human beings. So in my mind, there is a big difference. Let's, let's keep going because I've got some other things I want to tell you about. Gestational carriers. Um, <clears throat> A gestational carrier is where the husband and wife use their sperm and egg and someone carries it for them. An example is a case in England. There was a 42-year-old single woman. She had two teenage sons, and she signed on to be a gestational carrier for a couple, thinking that she was going to have a long-term relationship with the child and with this, with this couple. After she signed the contract and um, the embryos were transferred, she, because it has to be through IVF, um, she found this turning into a business-like relationship. And in fact, she was told by the couple who were Asian that they did not want their child to ever know it was carried by a white woman. And she was not to have any contact with them or the child afterwards. Then she found out she was carrying twins. And she was a little hesitant about this, but before there could be any discussion um, about the whole thing, the couple scheduled her for an abortion. She was still in the first trimester. She gave back the money and carried the pregnancy to term, had the babies, and currently, because legally the mother is the one who gives birth to a child, even though genetically she isn't the mother. She gave birth to it. She is the mother. Legally, the children are hers. They're living in their home, and because he is the biologic father, the, the genetic parents have weekend visiting rights, to the, or weekend custody for this child as it's going through the courts. So you can see the kind of problems that can develop over this, and there's a child caught in the middle of this all. True surrogacy is different. Um, true surrogacy is the old Mary Beth Whitehead case. You use the sperm of the father of the couple, and you just inseminate this woman. You actually don't need a doctor to do true surrogacy. You need a, a, a bed and a turkey baster or something like that, but you, you, which truly gets done um, because you don't need embryos and in vitro fertilization. Um, and surrogacy is outlawed in... In many countries, and um, in this country, even the American College of OBGYN and the American 
Society of Reproductive Medicine is not um, supportive of surrogacy. But it happens here. Michigan actually has a lot of lawyers who are very active in uh, surrogacy work. This was just a study that looked at 44 surrogates who carried children for other people. 33 of them had high-risk factors associated with them. And you don't have any control of how this woman takes care of herself while she's carrying your baby. How about sex selection? You want a boy? You want a girl? Um, This is banned for non-medical uses in Australia and Britain and Canada, France, Germany, other places. It is opposed here in this country too. But, again, it's not legislated. So this is an article on how the U.S. is a hot spot for people to come to pick uh, babies by their sex. Um, I had a couple, or I had a man come to my office, I don't even know where his wife was, um, who was uh, from the Middle East, and it was very important to him to have sons. And uh, he had already gone to two other doctors and done, you neither do in vitro fertilization with pregenetic diagnosis, find out which is a boy or a girl, throw away the girls, or whichever one you don't want, but usually it's the boys that are wanted, and transfer the boy. Or you could do something like this, which is much simpler with the sperm separation, because there is a difference in the sperm that fertilized. But this is not 100%, and he had tried it twice, and he had had two daughters. And he wanted to come in guaranteed he would have a boy. I didn't didn't work with him, but... um, People who come for this, the quote that's been said by one of the providers are, these are grown-up people expressing their reproductive choices. We cherish that in the United States. There's a very ethically, there's a very conditional form of love people are offering a child here. And what happens when you get the wrong sex? Do you do amniocentesis and abort the baby? Do you go ahead and have the child? Will this child be wanted? When you think of the problems in India and China and so many places today where infanticide is happening because of little girls not being wanted, this can feed into something like this. Designer babies uh, have to do with uh, making a child in our image, not being made in the image of God. And I talked about that a little bit with the donor eggs and donor sperm. But in Nottington, England, now there's a designer baby clinic. And for $15,000, you can have your embryos screened for genetic defects. Uh, They have over 100 defects that they're screening for. So you can design and pick the embryo that you would like transferred back. And the corollary, of course, is get rid of the other embryos. I really like this quote. Josephine Quinteville of Comment on Reproductive Ethics says, paying five million pounds for a state-of-the-art center in order to eliminate more embryos with disabilities sounds like aggressive eugenics. We need to develop real cures for genetic diseases, not kill the carriers. How do we look at these things? Well, that blastocyst I told you about on day three, several cells are taken out of it, and then uh, fish procedures are done. Here you can see, this actually is a trisomy 21. You can see there are three green um, chromosomes showing up. uh, And you can see uh, this is a male because the Y chromosome is gold, is right on the top. And in two days, they have to make a diagnosis and make a decision what to do or implant. This uh, gets us, this is an area called the savior sibling. And this is the creation of a child so that you can use its stem cells for an older sibling. This couple had a baby with Franconi's anemia. And so that needed a stem cell transfer. So, I mean, they were on Good Morning America and all sorts of things. And it sounds really wonderful you know, that they had this baby so that the baby can give a stem cell transfer to the older sibling. Um, You have to recognize that a whole bunch of embryos were created, and they were thrown away. And this embryo was used, and this child was not born because 
of the child. It was done what it could do for the other child. And there's all sorts of emotional implications to raising these children in that situation. This is the Bradford family, and they carried a remote cancer, uh, stomach cancer uh, gene. There's only 100 affected families in the world, and they had their stomachs removed so they wouldn't take the risk of getting cancer. I would like you to look, because I'm going to then talk about now doing this with PGD for embryos. Soon you won't have people like this because you can do PGD when they're embryos and just get rid of those embryos and keep these. I would just say, if you look at their ages, these don't, we're not even talking like on that other slide of trisomy children or 11 or 13 or whatever that are born with serious problems. We're now at a point where we're talking about people who have led a normal, healthy life, but may be at risk of getting a disease. Um, BRCA1 and 2, you know, which increases breast cancer, colon cancer rates is now undergoing um, pregenetic um, diagnosis so that those embryos can be uh, discarded because of the increased risk of that. Um, these are tough choices. These are very bad diseases and problems for people to have. I have to tell you, I counseled a medical student one time whose dad has Huntington's disease. She was checked for the gene and she's carrying it. And she is now married, and they're trying to decide what to do. And they were, they were asking me a pre-genetic diagnosis and all this. And what I said, I mean, one thing you have to consider, I mean, she knows better than anyone since she has the disease. Do you wish you were never born? Would it better to have not been born? Um, you know, she's going to medical school. She's perfectly healthy. She's perfectly fine. Right now, I'm not minimizing these diseases, but I am look, trying to point out to you some of the ethical issues that come up with them. And in fact, with the availability, even of chorionic villi sampling and amniocentesis, and now with pre-implantation genetic disorders, there's been pressure put on women who have babies who have Down syndrome that they should have aborted them, that this is not a worthwhile thing for society. Um, soon they're looking at genes for obesity, intelligence, uh, height. There's a real slippery slope here that you see we can be on. Um, there is, a, they allow in uh, England, there is a genetic disorder for severe squint that they do PGD and get rid of those embryos. <laughs> there is a doctor asked in England if he would start screening for hair color. And he said, Red hair color was a source of bullying, um, and that could lead to suicide. And that he would like to offer screening for this, if the law allowed him, screening for this and any other genetic factor that would cause the family distress. Washington Post did an editorial on this and called it cosmetic abortion. Um, a thing that we have you need to know about PGD is that your ongoing pregnancy rate is less if you've done PGD. So taking those cells out of those blastocysts does something to the blastocyst. So you're less likely to have a child if you do PGD, but that isn't mentioned. Um, this is just from an ethics journal. I thought it was interesting. Embryo options, building a better baby, made to order about picking the child of your dreams. Um, <clears throat> we talked about some of the ethical issues with PGD. I want to stop in a minute or so here, so I just want to mention a couple other things we won't have time to get into in detail. But one, this was a newspaper article, again, within the month on um, embryos created from three people. And what this has to do is pro-nuclear transfer that's being done for mitochondrial diseases. I'm happy to stay and uh, talk in more detail about that if anybody wants to hear more. But basically, you create um, embryos from um, the couple who has the mitochondrial disease, and you take out the nuclei. Then you create other embryos, and you take out the nuclei. So you've got two sets of 
embryos you've let go, and then you transfer the two embryos into the cytoplasm of the other one, and that's how that is done. Um, so it brings, we don't know yet if it's safe, it's effective, uh, how it affects the identity with these additional genes. Will this be considered like a donor, the person whose egg or embryo is being used? Will there be a third parent? Will they have rights in this pregnancy? A lot of issues. Um, let me just mention, we could talk about posthumous reproduction, which is a big article. Medical tourism, where people go to get cheap IVF and embryos uh, overseas, and you have to be aware that many times these women who are donating have been trafficked. They had no idea that's what they were doing. First uterus transplant was done in uh, July in Sweden. Um, and um, there, that means you have to be on rejection drugs and all sorts of things to have a uterine transfer. I don't know what happens if you go to reject the uterus while you're pregnant. They're going to go back and take them out after they have their pregnancies. Um, some people have even said maybe we could use it for gay men to carry babies. Um, the doctor in the U.S. who's doing the main research on this, whose picture's up there, he said, I don't think that it's a doctor's place to tell a patient their values are not important. Uh, there's some work being done in interspecies cloning right now in England uh, between human cells and cow cells. And we're on a slippery slope. The future, I'd argue, is here in a lot of these things. We dream of all these combinations and permutations and things that can be done. They're being done. So we need an awareness to be able to speak appropriately on these issues. Okay, that's it. Are there any questions? I will wait up here afterwards because we're really at the end of the session if anybody would like to ask anything. Thank you.